On a summer's day in the month of May, a burly bum come a-hiking. He was walking down the land through the sugar candy. He was looking for his liking. And as he strolled along, he sang songs of the land of middle Canada. Hey there, this is the Sounds of the Trail podcast, a place where we talk about the ups, downs, and switchbacks of trail life. It's time for a hike. Where a bum can stay for many a day, and he won't need any money. Welcome to Sounds of the Trail. This is episode 29, The Key Players, and I'm your host, Gizmo. I have some special introductions to make today, so I'm going to get right to it. The Appalachian Trail, the granddaddy of them all, 2,183 miles. No rain, no pain, no main. Pacific Crest Trail. This trail goes through three whole states, going through deserts, mountains, and more mountains. Are you wild enough? The Continental Divide Trail. This trail is all that stands between the Colorado and the Mississippi. I hope you like snow and grizzly bears. <laughs> I have no excuses for myself or my sense of humor, except that I did start experimenting with sound effects this week. <laughs> Anyhow, I guess you can tell what we are talking about this week. The three trails. Three trails in specific. The triple crown of the long-distance hiking world. Here in Sounds of the Trail, we have talked a lot about these trails already, but as we look at the start of a new hiking season, and especially Sound of the Trail's first season covering all three, I thought it was time for them to have their own episode and a proper introduction. Without these trails, there would be no podcast, after all. Before we get to that, I have some announcements, so let's get those out of the way. I want to talk to you all about what to expect from this through hiking season. Here at Sounds of the Trail, we are committed to covering the 2016 summer through hiking season, and that means we are going back to our once a week podcast schedule. Before that happens, though, I have my own little through hike to knock out of the way, as I'm leaving to hike the Arizona Trail in less than a week. And I feel so good I'm going to say it again. I'm leaving in less than a week to hike the Arizona Trail. Um, I'm not really sure what my ability to book content out is going to look like from the trail, but I'm going to guess really bad. And I'm still going to try and get an episode out every few weeks, but I have learned my lesson about making podcast promises, so no promises. But I'll be thinking about you and this podcast while I'm out there, and starting in May when I'm back, we'll be back to our regular programming. What else to expect from the podcast this year? Well, I was talking to Kimchi this morning, and she reminded me that 
right about now is more or less our one-year anniversary podcasting together. It was about this time last year that I called her up and said, I have an idea. And she's been along for the ride ever since, uh, which I'm really grateful for. It's been a really wonderful experience. But some of our goals for 2016 is to grow up a little bit, a little bit better sound quality, a little bit more polished content-wise, and a little bit more financially compensated. So there will be some changes this summer, some bigger, some smaller, but I think you'll be excited about them all. Also, another change, this one's pretty cool, Sounds of the Trail now has a voicemail line. So if you want to leave us a message with your voice, you can do that. All you have to do is call 520-222-9049 and leave us a message. And I, I won't promise to not put those on the air, so you have been forewarned. And finally, I want to take a minute and thank everyone who has gone on to iTunes and subscribed to the podcast or who has left us a rating or a review. You listeners are the main reason. Maybe, okay, you listeners are the only reason that we are still doing this. And hearing back from you all is such a boost every time. This podcast is a pretty big extracurricular commitment for me, and it's worth it. You make it worth it. And when you go onto iTunes and leave a subscription or a review, it actually helps raise our visibility in iTunes, which is the primary way that people find out about this podcast, which then helps other people find us. So if you want to help other people find out about the show, make me feel like a rock star, and you know, do something good for humanity head on over to iTunes. All right, no more business, only trail talk. In order to introduce the three trails properly, I figured we needed to dive into the history a bit and how they got started. And I was thinking that a good place to start might be the passing of the 1968 National Trails System Act that officially designated the Appalachian and Pacific Crest Trails as United States National Scenic Trails. And that's important but the Appalachian Trail has actually been around much longer, starting as an idea in the head of Benton McKay in 1921. But then, if we are talking about just the idea of thru-hiking, or pilgrimages, maybe we need to talk about the Camino de Santiago in Europe, which has been walked for a thousand years, or the Islamic Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which has been around even longer. And how far back do you go? The dawn of time? Maybe just the dawn of humanity, right? After all, what is our heritage as humans if not walking? That's how we've always gotten to where we are. We've been walking for a long, long time. And walking seems to be one of those physical pursuits which almost all humans are pretty good at. If you're fortunate to be in fairly good health, whether you're in any kind of physical shape or not, you can probably walk a lot further than you'd think. And we see that in the grim history of the death marches that have occurred throughout history, including here on U.S. soil, and in the less depressing history of the 19th century pioneers who crossed the U.S. in wagons. And we can see it now when the Syrian refugees fleeing for their lives walking across Europe. You know, it's, it's always been a part of everything we've done. My own family heritage is Mormon, both sides going back a ways, which means that I probably wouldn't exist if a whole bunch of my ancestors hadn't decided that they wanted to walk to Utah. 
They were more broke than the average Mormon pioneers, too, so instead of having oxen to pull their wagons, they had to pull their carts themselves. And based on their journals, I don't know that I'd recommend this. But it does make me wonder, with that kind of family history, shouldn't I be an awesome walker? The answer is no. I'm a very mediocre hiker. Maybe it's too many generations back. One of our new trail correspondents for this year has his own family history of walking, which he shared with me and which I'm now sharing with you. This is homework, and he is telling the story of a long walk that his grandfather took. On May 9th, 1962, my grandfather, Herbert H. Hashi, took his first step of a thousand miles from the San Francisco Opera House to the Seattle Space Needle as a way to reassure man that he will still be able to fill his lungs with fresh air amidst the marvels of the 21st century. He would hike against four other competitors by the names of Charles Knoll, 28, Robert Lemaire, 38, and John Stahl, the age of 79, and they would all receive $1,000 from the Rainier Brewing Company upon their arrival, as well as a $20 stipend for each night of accommodations of their choice. The only qualifying factors of the participants were that they had to be between the ages of 21 and 65, in good health, and a man. Adam Gossage of Rainier Brewing Company came up with the advertising stunt in order to promote their finest of ales in celebration of the Seattle World's Fair. My grandfather was one of 700 applicants when he replied, I was born in 1900, being 62 years of age, I feel like 32. I can work the average man under the table. He went on to explain how he grew up farming corn in Dune, Iowa, before he made his way to Hollywood, where he worked in the motion picture business with actors such as Clark Gable, Robert Montgomery, and Bing Crosby. With the arrival of the Depression and invention of talkies, or movies with audio, he made his way back to Iowa, where he took up automotive engineering. There, he invented the Roto Springleaf bearing and revolutionized the automobile spring structure of all cars, improving ride and comfort and preventing brakes and squeaks. In 1949, he married my grandmother, Evelyn S. Ellis, had five children, my mother being their third eldest, Gina McKee. After the success of his Roto bearing company, he moved back to California, retired shortly thereafter, and then started up a construction business. At the end of the biography he submitted to Rainier Ale in 1962, he stated, I expect to walk to Seattle World's Fair from San Francisco and enjoy it. And that he did. He started his walk wearing a pair of light-colored khaki pants, a sweatshirt with a screen-printed image of J.S. Bach, a hat, a long tan cane, and what looked like a pair of black high-top boots. He woke up at 3 a.m. daily to start his trek north, gaining between 30 and 40 miles of road before the heat of the day. He usually threw his hat on whatever hotel bed or loft he stayed in around noon, whereas other hikers, such as Charles Knowles, the 28-year-old, chose to wake late and hike late. I like to think my grandfather's dawn hiking habits were from his formative childhood years on the farm, where there were chores to do before the sun rose. The most humorous part of his get-up, in my opinion, was his battery-powered transistor radio that he listened to every day. When a newspaper journalist inquired about his gadget, he responded with, Music keeps me light-footed. Those who love music are never morose, never lonely. Along the way, he found a total of 69 cents. Chrome strips, lost gas caps, empty beer cans, and cigarette lighters. He said, 
I guess some people light cigarettes, shake the lighters like matches, then throw them out. <laughs> All four hikers started off on different routes. Coach Stahl and Robert Lemaire were way behind in Northern California and Southern Oregon when my grandfather and Charles Knowles, age of 28, ran into each other off Highway 99 near Eugene, Oregon. They decided to continue the hike together, but because of my grandfather's early rising habits and Knowles' preference to sleep in, they would meet up in the evening at whatever hotel they had chosen beforehand, and in some cases, the only lodging in town. Looking back on all the publicity and candid photos from my grandfather's walk, I noticed their body language towards each other in San Francisco, compared to the later photos as they crawled north. They seemed to form a camaraderie over their adventure and transcend age and culture, and I believe they became friends. You can see a photo of my grandfather sitting in bliss with his legs crossed, looking up at Knowles, clad in his skirt, playing a tune on the bagpipes he carried along with him. I also noticed as I read through all the articles that every reporter wanted to know who was going to win the competition. But that's not what these guys were doing. He said, I'm doing it because I've never done it before. My grandfather once answered and later said, I'm doing it for the challenge. Charles Knowles and my grandfather carried that spirit along with them as they strolled across the finish line of the World's Fair entrance, together on June 15th. A little over 30 days from the start of their walk from San Francisco, which also happened to be California Day. There, each walker collected his $1,000 check and six gold coins. My grandfather could not wait to get back home to his family down in Santa Barbara, California, but took a day with Charles Knowles to tour the Space Needle while in Seattle, and I'm sure to say goodbye. One year later, a week following the death of John F. Kennedy, and the day after Thanksgiving, my grandfather was hit by a car and killed. He was on his way home to his family, just south of Santa Barbara on Highway 101, at Rincon Hill when he stopped his automobile to retrieve materials that had fallen out. Recently, I talked to my Aunt Nina, my mom's sister, and my grandfather's eldest, and she said, I think back on the strength of your grandfather, Herb. He never gave up. He stayed positive in the worst of times and remembered how to laugh and have fun. He considered himself invincible. He feared nothing and adored his family. He was far from perfect, but always authentic. The epitome of true grit. It's not far-fetched to understand how I can feel touched by this story as Herb's grandson and a long-distance hiker myself. Sometimes I wonder what my mom thinks about me and my obsession with long trails. Sometimes I wonder how she could be okay with this lifestyle. But then, I remember my grandfather's story. That story is a good reminder to go out and adventure, as regular life is not guaranteed to be safe either, right? That walk that Homer's grandpa took was in 1962, six years before the passage of the National Trail System Act, and there must have been something floating around in the air back then that got people thinking and excited about hiking in the outdoors. Although the Appalachian Trail had been around for decades at that point, it didn't have the protections that it has today until that act was passed. I actually looked up the law, and this is the stated policy. In order to provide for the ever-increasing outdoor recreation needs of an expanding population, and in order to promote public access to, travel within, and enjoyment and appreciation of the open-air, outdoor areas of the nation, trails should be established primarily near the urban areas of the nation, and secondarily within established scenic areas more remotely located. 
The purpose of the Act is to provide the means for attaining these objectives by instituting a national system of recreation and scenic trails, by designating the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail as the initial components of that system, and by prescribing the methods by which, and standards according to which, additional components may be added to the system. I'll note here that the Continental Divide Trail was added as a national scenic trail 10 years later in 1978, and that there are 11 total designated national scenic trails in the U.S. today. As far as heritage goes, the national scenic trails are an incredible part of the American legacy. I think they rank right up there with national parks as darn good ideas. American pilgrimages. And the Triple Crown, successful thru-hikes of the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail, makes it sound like winning the horse races. Which fits, because everyone knows Americans like to win. But there is something about the National Scenic Trails that, in my opinion, is distinctly different from these other journeys and these other pilgrimages. And it's sort of subtle, but it's huge. The U.S. National Scenic Trails, unlike other pilgrimages, have no destination. Unlike so many of our other journeys, the point is not to get there. Wherever there is. There's no there there, you know? On the Appalachian Trail, it's true that the endpoints of the trail are geographical points of interest. The northern endpoint, Mount Katahdin, is an impressive piece of rock. But on the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide, completely arbitrary geopolitical boundaries. I mean, the Mexican and Canadian borders, how do they get there in the first place? Some dude who had never been there drew a straight line on a map. I can't speak for the Continental Divide, but I can personally attest for the endpoints of the Pacific Crest Trail being completely unscenic places. They are not the point. Even Congress got it, at least back in 1968. They're for enjoyment and appreciation. And I bring up the legal framework for the trails because it's important. Places like these trails don't happen on accident. They're ideas that grew up. A lot of people worked really hard and continue to work really hard to build and maintain and protect the trails. I'm getting ready to hike the Arizona Trail, for example, which is one of the 11 National Scenic Trails, and I can think of three parts of that trail, just off the top of my head, that are imminently threatened by mining interests. And the end result, protected or lost, will be what we as a society have decided is more important to us. Well, I think the trails are important, which is why I talk about them all the time. And we're going to keep talking about them all summer. <laughs> I was originally planning in this episode on talking more about the different personalities of the three trails of the Triple Crown, but I decided against it. First, I think that the character of the trails will reveal themselves in a more natural way as we go throughout this summer, and they don't need me to do it. Second, because I've only hiked one of them and nobody needs me to go around spouting a bunch of uh, secondhand information, but because it is nice to have some framework as we talk about these trails, I asked Wired a triple crowner, and a winner to talk about the trails with me. I introduced Wired on our last episode, so if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and find out a little bit more about her and her motivations. But in this episode, we're going to continue where that interview left off about her personal experiences with the three trails. Well, maybe let's switch to talking about the trails. And when I say the trails, I think in the thru-hiking community, people sort of know what we're talking about, but outside of that community that that doesn't mean anything. So when we talk about the trails, typically what we're talking about are these these three trails that make up the triple crown of long distance hiking. 
and you are a triple crowner. Yeah. So why don't you explain to us what those three trails are and, and introduce those trails to us from your point of view. The three trails that uh, those people that the triple crown consists of is the Appalachian Trail, which is 2,200 miles about. And then you got the Pacific Crest Trail, about 2,700 miles. And then the Continental Divide Trail, which is up to 3,100 miles, depending on the route that you choose. So those three make up the Triple Crown. Because I live out here on the West Coast, I did the Pacific Crest Trail first, then the Continental Divide Trail, and then the Appalachian Trail. I don't, I think like a lot of through hikers, it's, you don't set out to complete the Triple Crown. Like you set out to hike one trail or even a week of a trail or one section at a time. And then as you become more, I guess you'd say addicted, or um, just you just one thing leads to another. And uh, you might just like in marathoning, I found it the same as that I'd finish a trail and be like, I'm never doing that again. And then like <laughs> two days later, I'm, I'm planning the next trail. So that's how that evolved. And once I completed the Continental Divide Trail, it was just like, you know, they say you either do one trail or you do three. I definitely learned a lot and became a whole other person through that experience. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Maybe you could start with your first trail and what you learned from that trail. Yeah. That was most important. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what the actual trail had to do with it. You know, we like, there's a lot of things that these trails have in common, but they actually have very different personalities too, at least in reputation. And I'm sure that those settings influence the lessons that you learned. So I love that you know that each trail has its own kind of personality and feel to it and that you get different experiences from each one. So uh, I appreciate that question. And, and I also think that, that the order influences it too. You know, someone who does the Appalachian Trail first and then the Pacific Crest Trail will have yeah. different different takeaways. Definitely. And so yeah. I, I really want to introduce these trails but to our listeners because this year on the podcast we're, we're trying to cover all three of them. But I don't feel adequately prepared to do it myself because I have only hiked one of them. And and I don't feel like you can know these trails except through a, a personal lens, but maybe that's the best way to talk about them. So I'm I'm really curious to see, like, through your experience as a first-time thru-hiker on the Pacific Crest Trail, what was that lens and, and what did that trail mean to you? Yeah, the... I walked into the Pacific Crest Trail really relatively not that experienced. I had only started backpacking long distance wise a year before. I had done a two week practice that I did injure myself on the year before and I learned quickly that I, I may be wired and I might be able to like do endurance activities, but I need to learn to ease into things. Big time lesson that I learned before even starting the Pacific Crest Trail was that although I was a marathoner and I knew I could do endurance activities, you're supposed to let your body rest in the beginning of a trail. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so I'm glad I, I learned that because I would have never made it past the first two weeks of the Pacific Crest Trail had I not done a practice run beforehand and learned that lesson and injured myself to where I was out for a month after that. As I said, I was relatively new. So on the Pacific Crest Trail, I just went into it actually thinking I have a flexible job. I'm substitute teaching. I just want to try this for a week. And mentally, I'm very realistic about things. And I had only looked at like one week. Let's just take it one step at a time. So I was like, wow, okay, really? let's just take that first. Well, that's how I was approaching it. I didn't want to like set up something of failure for myself. So yes, I had sent boxes or prepared boxes for the trail. But in my mind, I was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to like this. So 
I think being on the PCT for me was just a huge transition in my life of I don't have to just do this pre-planned nine to five routine kind of thing. I never planned for my life to fit into through hiking. It just, it came into the fold. Like I never intended to set my life up to have this flexibility and it just kind of fell into place. And I just feel like it will, like they say the trail provides, I don't think people should come into something blindly, but I think that if you put your intentions in the right direction over multiple years and kind of time, I think that things will kind of unfold in a way that you hope that they would. So was there a point on the on the PCT where you thought you were going to quit? Oh, there was never a quitting point. <laughs> there definitely wasn't. Um, so I don't really ever have that. Once you once I say I'm going to do something, I'm pretty focused in on on doing it. So I was realistically like, okay, it's a record high snow year. Go into this very realistic. I just had to make it one week at a time in the desert, and then that snow hit. And I mean, our year we had. It was 2011 and we had, uh, I had counted 31 days, not consecutively, but 31 days from the Sierra to Northern California where there was mostly snow. So that was definitely an aspect to my first hike that most people don't have. And I, I'm glad I had it. Would I want to repeat such a situation? Probably not. Um, <laughs> but it made for an amazing experience and something I'm so happy happened. Is there any particular moment on the Pacific Crystal that sort of embodies the entire experience to you? Yeah, and that's an interesting one because to me, when I think of the Pacific Crest Trail, it's a wave of a lot of things kind of combining all at once. And uh, you just get moments of like crossing that really cold stream with a group of people who you don't know or being brought into somebody's home, the trail magic that people do for you, and um, getting that unique hitch kind of thing. And what I just felt with the Pacific Crest Trail in general is I've always told people if you're only going to hike one of the long trails and you don't think you might be able to hike another one, I would aim for the Pacific Crest Trail. And that's I know that there's personality differences for a lot of people, but my personal preference is that trail because I just feel like it's home. And there's something about it that it feels so welcoming and relaxing and calm, like as I'm hiking it, even when I was hiking it on that, that super high snow year. Yeah, I was tired and there was a lot coming, but it's so weird even today when I step on that trail somewhere out here around it, it just has a different feel to it. And I'm like, it just, it, it has a feeling of home on it that, um, that's very comforting. And so it's a general feel for that trail and not one that I have a specific story for, but just an overall feel of, of just comfort and safety on that trail. Do you think that has anything to do with it being your first? I do wonder if that's it. And if that's also like where I discovered through hiking and it's where I practiced and it was just a huge shift for me. But I've talked to some other people that kind of feel the same way that the Pacific Crest Trail out of all of them is least likely to want to harm you. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got the gradual trail, nice, wide, beautiful vistas. The weather is usually ideal. I think even though I was walking in snow, I only got like a few days of actual, like some a little bit of rain. And if it happened, it was like for 30 minutes. I, I just remember that, that trail, it, it's one that's it's pretty pristine and fortunate for the most part. Um, that I had that kind of experience. I know that it's not always perfect and you can have like a few days of rain and that kind of thing, but I feel like in comparison to the others, it's just 
so much more welcoming and relaxing than the others. So I think it's a good time to switch to our, our second trail, which for you is a continental divide trail. And when I think about second, second is like not a great place. <laughs> I, I remember hearing an interesting study they've done of Olympic medal winners where the the satisfaction of medal winners where, you know, just, just where they placed on the podium and first place winners, gold medalists were, were really happy. Silver medalists were unhappy. They were the the least happy, but the bronze medalists were the happiest (laughs) because they almost didn't make the podium and they did. And, you know, the first met first place you have, the only place you have to go is down, although you have achieved this peak. But but the the second place is this almost, and I think about like my sophomore year of high school or my sophomore year of college or my second time doing anything, and it's easy for that second time to suffer from comparison to the first. Right. Was that true for you? Yeah, I guess you'd liken the PCT to a first love, and and <laughs> and you just want to keep comparing it to that. I have something that I did learn overall from each trail. So with the Pacific Crest Trail, the lesson was I never want to wonder what if. I went on to the Continental Divide Trail because I knew that if I didn't go, I would always wonder what if. I'm glad that I did go for it and that I learned the lesson on the Pacific Crest Trail of not wanting that what if. So when I did get on the Continental Divide Trail, the novelty had worn off. I definitely did not have that emotional moment that I had at the beginning of the Pacific Crest Trail that I had at the beginning of the Continental Divide. And then I knew what was coming. I knew the pains that I was going to go through. I knew the desert was not going to be my favorite thing and to expect that I was going to hit snow by the time I hit Colorado and that there'd be this huge up when I hit Colorado. And then I'd end up in Wyoming, just like Northern California is for the Pacific Crest Trail. And there'd be a down, there'd be a lull. And then there'd be that drive to the end to try to make it before snow, you know? So it kind of did have me a little flat. But what I would say about it is that my Pacific Crest Trail year was so insanely grueling that I didn't know how to be on a regular trail. So I was back on the Continental Divide Trail where there wasn't an extreme year. And I found, surprisingly, I finished a trail that ended up being 200. I did it in 2,800 miles about so because you can take different routes. And most people do about 2,800 miles on the Continental Divide Trail. So it was about 200 miles longer, and I finished it two weeks earlier than the Pacific Crest Trail. So wow. that's I I found that interesting that I I had learned that much that it was a swing of that much the weather and just my physical and mental ability. Uh, so my lesson learned from the Continental Divide Trail is that I was so much stronger mentally and physically than I ever thought I was. And I'm really glad I did that trail as for that purpose of learning that lesson. It, it gave me a little bit more experience as far as cross-country travel. Then it also gave me some more confidence in doing more hiking on my own and doing my personal thing. So I think that's something that we all struggle with on the trail um, and even in life is that balance of doing something by yourself versus doing it with a group or other people. And that's been a bit, probably my biggest challenge over all the trails is just kind of finding that balance. And what are you willing to sacrifice to be able to stay with certain people? Or are you willing to just let things drop to do things by yourself? Within the first week of being on the Continental Divide, I found that I was not comfortable being in the groups. And I knew that coming off the Pacific Crest Trail that I wasn't either. And I really was trying to in, embody this and do what others do. And I just found that I needed to do my own thing. I ended up finishing with somebody who had 
it was their first through hike, which is unique for the Continental Divide Trail. To finish with somebody who had never finished a trail before and have that emotion where she cried at the end and it was such a, a, a difficult thing for her and this was her first trail, it really made me appreciate the trail so much more to finish it with somebody. Yeah, I bet that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> to have that energy. Yeah. Cause and I, th- I think when you, this thing that you didn't think maybe was possible or you're like, I'm just taking it a week at a time or, I mean, you hope it's, it's a possibility, but until, until you're there, I don't think I believed until I was at the monument that I was going to get there. Yeah. And that was the difference for me. Like the Pacific Crest Trail, I would have said, I didn't believe until um, there's a Seattle, there's a crossing on a log that I had to do. And it was at the end and the last leg. And I was like, once I passed that, I was like, wow, I'm going to finish this trail. But it wasn't until that <laughs> happened. And then same, and then for the Continental Divide Trail though, I just knew, like I, for some reason there was a, there was a steadiness and a, that I just had a confidence that, okay, well, this is going to happen. And I didn't really think about what ifs and if that, if it might or might not happen. I was just assuming that it would and it kind of just all fell into place. So, so moving on to the third trail, I think you said earlier that you know, you either do one trail or you do all three. Yeah. Do you think you did the Appalachian Trail almost solely out of a sense of obligation? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. I, I, and, I mean, and an obligation to who is is an interesting question, but yeah, the, you know. The, so the with the Appalachian Trail, I I just knew as soon as I was done with the Continental Divide, I had already was saying, "Yep, well, next year I'm going to be doing the Appalachian Trail," and. Everybody's like, oh, you're going to hate it because they know me like me. I, I don't want to be around a lot of people and I'm I'm somewhat a selfish hiker and that I want to do things my way. And I'm happy to be around other people if they're overlapping my pattern. But if I'm having to adjust for other people, I have the habit of not doing that. Like I, I'm just selfish in that way that I want to I'm doing something that is innately uncomfortable and I'm not going to make it more uncomfortable to be around people when I already I have struggles with social dynamic anyway. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm up front about it. I have to say that coming on the Appalachian Trail, I went into it thinking this is going to be it. The purpose of this is to work on your social skills. And <laughs> I don't think that's something that people would typically think of as a takeaway for long distance hiking. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I knew I had, I had figured it out. Like on the Pacific Crest Channel, the Continental Divide, I had figured out this whole mental and physical challenge thing. But now, like if I wanted to be a survivor, you know, there's the outwit, outlast and outplay or whatever. And there's a social dynamic to survivor and I'm a survivor fan, but I, I think that that's where I would go crazy. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I would go crazy in the social dynamic on Survivor because I couldn't handle the social like interactions. But so anyway, back to the Appalachian Trail. Well, well, it sounds like your fear was that the Appalachian Trail would be just like your own personal version of Survivor. Is this the case? I totally went into it thinking that. So what ended up happening on that trail is that I went into it telling myself, okay, be open to social experiences. Of course, when I got onto the trail, I fell into my habituated non-social activity. So I would hike long days. And so I really wasn't overlapping with people more than once or twice. And if I saw anyone, I just wouldn't see them again. So I got into a pattern of not connecting with people because I knew I wouldn't see them again which is not a habit that you want to come across and develop in life in any way. And I didn't know that I was doing that. I didn't realize that I was doing it. And so over that trail, I can say um, someone did tell me that that trail is the one where you are forced to be in your own mind for the most 
amount of time as opposed to the other ones. The other ones have a distraction. There's a scenic distraction. There's a navigational distraction. This one's kind of automatic. You're walking on a trail that's clearly defined for you. There's less scenery. So you're brought within your own mind a lot. What also changes it up on the Appalachian Trail is that social dynamic. So if you're wanting to make that trail more than what it is, as far as walking in the woods for five, four or five months, then I found myself, I was reaching out more maybe for a social experience after the first couple of months. Was there a specific point at which you realized that you were missing out on this part of things and decided to change? I did have a situation that occurred uh, when I hit near Damascus. So we're talking Virginia. So I was a month or two in. The person that introduced me pretty much to backpacking, a, a good friend of mine that I grew up with and went to high school and college with, and he committed suicide as I was in the Grayson Highlands. I turned on my phone to find out that he had committed suicide, and he had done that after... There had been some accusations of um, assaults that he had committed maybe against like a spree of assaults. So a lot of these were, this news was very shocking to me. And then I was in the woods alone thinking about women being assaulted. And I read, oh. I read details about the reports. It's still yet to ever be known if that was really his doing or not, or if he was just really confused and afraid when all of it started to transpire because he had maybe, um, a, he was being, uh, what would you say, typecast uh, just by his looks or his appearance maybe. So there's no knowing if he was just really afraid or if it really was ever like done by him. But after this suicide occurred and I had those thoughts in my head, another hiker came up next to me and it was a guy and I ended up overlapping with him a couple of times. And then we just decided to do the next leg together. And for me, my mental, I needed somebody else around me to get me out of my head. Cause as I said, you on the Appalachian trail, you're in your head so much if you're not with other people. And so my head was not a good place to be at that point. And I'd never been afraid of being in the woods by myself, but I had gotten myself to that point on that trail. And uh, so that week that I had around Damascus really helped to reset me. And then from there, I think I didn't know this, but I think that that reset and the whole experience and how I was um, kind of just accepting it as the trail was going on and still processing it. I came across a family and they were hiking with their seven and nine year old and their dog. And we spent a week together and it was probably one of the best experiences I've had in my life. And that shifted for me. I was no longer hanging around people because they were overlapping with my schedule or because there was snow or because there was a difficult river crossing. I, it was no longer by coincidence, but it was intentional. And that's a huge shift for me in my life in general to make an effort to stay with other people, even when it doesn't naturally overlap with my life. Do you feel like that that has carried over to your, your off trail life as well? It is difficult for me because of how much I work. So I think that I maybe even set myself up to work so much so that I don't have to deal with those social dynamics. It works for me because I, I do work in a social field. So I'm getting tons of social interaction and I'm working with families. So I'm getting that family feel. But as far as me having like long term, any kind of anything that I can keep sustained, it's difficult when you work as many hours as I do and then leave for five to six months out of the year. 
So, I mean, that's something that you can always work on. (laughs) (laughs) We all have our things, you know. Right, exactly. So it's something that I found ways to probably, I don't know, it is, it works for me. But when I got onto the Appalachian Trail and overlapped with this family and we just completely became, I had never been around like so much genuine love ever. Like it was just so awesome. They're just amazing. And the love that they all had for each other was really awesome. And we just became a unit as a family for that week and, and have kept in touch even still since then and hope to overlap in the future. But, uh, so that helped me. And then I did have to move on from them because we had different schedules, but, uh, I made it and then got to the final three weeks of the trail and actually held up and waited for somebody that I had overlapped with briefly a few weeks before. And because the trail was not very enjoyable and I was having some rough time and so was the person that was behind me, she sped up and I waited for three days and we ended up finishing out the last three weeks of the trail together. And again, it really taught me that sometimes it's worth spending that extra time to be able to do something with another person. It was a lesson that I learned on the Appalachian Trail big time is to be open more to letting other people in and sharing experiences with other people and the benefits that can come from that. And and I think that the trails are these unique places for that to happen because I think about people that I met on the Pacific Crest Trail and I hiked with them for maybe two weeks and I feel like we are going to be friends for the rest of our lives. Like the bond, <laughs> we were together for, for two weeks and I don't know, it was just such an intense emotional experience to get to know people in that setting. Yeah, it's just... I don't know if I can properly describe it. Right. Um, there's just nothing like that bond that you have when you've hiked those many miles and you're all, you're, you're setting forth on the same exact path and going through the same difficulties and like trials and tribulations. And they just know, and they get it in the same way that you do, especially at the end of a trail where you've both experienced so much of the same things, maybe parallel to each other, or just a day away from each other. And then you get to overlap and kind of relive the whole trail. I find through hiking so unique because When in life are you around so many people who have rearranged their life to intentionally be in the moment they're in at the exact moment they're in it? Yeah, I think that's really well put. So before we wrap this up, one thing that I would like to to do before we finish is is do a a highlight reel and (laughs) best (laughs) sort of like scenery wise, people wise, whatever it it made that moment, but like the, the best moments on on each of the three trails. Yeah. For the Pacific Crest Trail, it was definitely the Sierra section and that snow. It was such a was, unique Was year. there a particular like pass or, or moment on the trail where you're like, this is, this is it. Like I'm, I'm living my life right now. Yeah. It was pretty remarkable that we, uh, the group that I was with, we did a sunrise summit of Mount Whitney in the snow and we started at 1130 at night and we hiked and got there at sunrise. That's how high the snow was. And we couldn't even camp at Guitar Lake because it was so, high snow that we were even pushed back even further. So that sunrise summit. And then we went back and the next day we got to Forrester either the next day or the day after that. Yeah. Forrester was like two days left after that. And we woke up at three 30 in the morning to do that one. And that was also a sunrise. And as we were approaching Forrester, that's something that just looms in your mind and you hear about, and there's that fearful point of crossing 
over and, Forrester. And why why is Forrester have that reputation? It's the highest. Yeah, it, it is the highest point on the Pacific Crest Trail. Technically, um, Whitney is a side trip, so Forrester is the point that everyone goes over on the Pacific Crest Trail. That is the highest point. Given that it was such a high snow year, um, what it's known as is that it has this chute that you have to traverse across, and it's a straight down chute that um, you look down that sucker and, and you're you're headed straight down if you slip on that traverse, and it's a very narrow traverse. That was one that you kind of hear about, and it's like this you know legendary kind of thing that's in your mind as you're approaching the Sierra, and to I have a video of it that I took as we were approaching it, and just to have to see the people in front of me i was with the group and they were spots up on this snow there was no trail because there was so much trail so much snow that it, they were just spots going up it and then you didn't know what was on the other side like we would just come up over it, and i just can remember the experience of going up it and the adrenaline that was running through me because i was not I was I was new to snow expedition kind of stuff. So that ice axe was something that I had only used for maybe two days before I got up there. And um, then to come up and crest over it and see what lied ahead afterwards was really amazing. And then to be in Oregon in general, it's my home state right now. And it's where I kind of laid the groundwork to be able to do the PCT and learn more about backpacking. And I just felt at home. And that was where I kind of set free myself to kind of hike solo and do more by myself. So in particular, that day going to the border up in Washington, that one, that was pretty grand. And I saw a video and I saw pictures of it and the way there was a swath cut into the forest. And then you come down and you hit the monument. And so that, that was pretty big. Moving over to the Continental Divide Trail. Yeah. So that one, the first day, like I just remember the first two days, there was some cross country and some Cairns and that that was unique. That was something I'd never experienced. So uh, to be out there and be like, oh, this isn't that bad. Like this is something that I can do. And it was only in the first two days I went into it so worried. And then I was like, oh, this is doable. This is something that's realistic. It's not as frightening as I thought. And being in the Wind River Range, it I, I found my home, a lot of the Continental Divide Trail is a lot of dirt road and kind of flat dirt road, expansive hiking. And just as soon as we had gone through Wyoming and you hit the Wind River Range, you get back into those mountains. And it made me realize how much I really, that's my type of hiking, is uh, the mountain, the alpine, the high alpine lakes and the mountains. I, I absolutely love it. And uh, then when I hit Glacier, that was one that was so intimidating to me. The whole idea of Glacier National Park, I'd never known what to expect up there. And you hear about bears and all this stuff. And then it became like this totally doable, friendly, clear trail blazed thing that you could just glide across and take in amazing views. So uh, those days through Glacier, there was about four days, I think, um, that were just epic and let me know that that's where I, I, my favorite hiking is, is up in those Northern Cascades. As far as the Appalachian Trail, what I loved about the early part of that was how um, the leaves were not on the trees yet when I started in, in mid-April. And then I got to see on all the other trails, you were in a desert and then all of a sudden you hit snow and you, and you'd either hit snow. And then after that, you'd see some flowers, like things were bloomed. On the Appalachian Trail, I got to see every day the little buds that were popping up and the progression of just a few buds on a tree 
to like, you know, seeing some color to then full fledged flowers and then to drop down into an area where you were in a huge, like foliaged green, thick brushed area. And, uh, to watch that evolution happen by walking speed was really unique and something I didn't get to experience on the other two trails. And then Maine, I have to say Maine has my heart. So I really enjoyed Maine and, um, this, the lakes and, uh, I, New Hampshire and Maine, those two were my highlights on the Appalachian Trail. And I really enjoyed the trail out there. It just had good variety of a mixture of views, lakes, and, uh, just old growth forest and difficult terrain, rocks. It, I like the uniqueness of Maine. One thing that struck me about many of these experiences you just recounted was how many of them had to do with a reorientation of your expectations. Yeah, I think that's a good point is that, um, I went into something thinking one thing and then, and then it ended up being the experience that I was having. I really had been down on the, on the Appalachian trail, just the forest and the, and I was just kind of ready to be done of being in a green tunnel. And then when I hit Maine, I didn't want it to end. Well, thanks so much for, for talking with me. I really appreciate getting to hear about, about all these trails from the source and, and getting to hear about your experience. And I think it's been a good reminder to me to, you know, to, to you have to keep recommitting to living your life. It isn't a decision you get to make once. Yeah, it's definitely a lifestyle. And uh, I, I'm glad that we were able to do this and go over all three trails. The I, I, It'll be fun to hear different experiences from different people as you guys have the podcast on all three trails this coming summer. It'll, it's something to look forward to. And, um, I like that you guys are doing this and that you're having a variety of people on different trails to bring. It's like through hiking is more, it, it brings together that community because I think a lot of people might not that aren't in it don't really realize that it's such a small community and we're all kind of just walking just a trail like you're just you're all just walking and we do kind of all overlap in some way and it's really cool that uh you're not just isolating it to just one trail and it's more about general trail life experiences and not specifically one trail over another well some of us are missing through hopes and some of us aren't but the magical thing about the trails is that they meet you where you are at it's real trail magic i don't know how it works but it does um, let's see. I am heading out really soon for the Arizona Trail, so if you're interested in following along visually, I do keep an Instagram that I like to update when I'm hiking. It's one of many circles, so you can feel free to check that out. And coming up, we will have our official introductions of our 2016 through hiking correspondent team, and they are all awesome, and I can't wait to introduce them to you all. So stay tuned for that. Talk to you soon. Rock Candy Mountain, you never have to change your socks. And little streams of alcohol come a trickling through the rocks. All the railroad bowls at the tip of their hats, and the railroad bowls are all blind. There's a little lake of stew and a whiskey, too. You can paddle all around it in your big canoe on the big rock Candy Mountain.